And as always, I have to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible, but tonight's lecture is a special one. It marks the final one of the Civil War sesquicentennial to be co-sponsored by our friends at the Richmond National Battlefield Park. Um, Dave Ruth approached us back in 2011 about this, and we've done one a year and had great turnout, and it's just been a wonderful partnership. So Dave, thank you so much for the idea and for bringing um, this to us here at the VHS. So I'm um, glad to welcome to the stage uh, David Ruth, who's the superintendent of the Richmond National Battlefield Park, who will introduce our speaker. Dave. Thank you, Paul. I liked everything that you said except that word final, uh, final program. We may have to talk about that, and maybe, maybe we can uh, continue this as part of the legacy of the Susquecentennial. It's been a, an incredible four years, really, and, and I, I think this is something that um, I think we can continue to bring to the Richmond community, and I hope we can do that. Uh, it is with great honor that I have the chance to introduce tonight's speaker to you, William C. Davis, who was without a doubt royalty among Civil War historians. William C. Davis, known by many as Jack, is a native of Independence, Missouri. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees from Sonoma State University in Northern California, then spent 20 years in editorial management in the magazine and book publishing industry before leaving in 1990 to spend the next decade working as a writer and consultant there and abroad. To me personally, though, Jack was incredibly important in my exploration of the Civil War period when I, when I was still in high school. During the 60s and the 70s, I would rush out 10 times a year to the mailbox because back then, I think he took two months off, and Civil War Times Illustrated was only published uh, uh, 10 times a year. And I grabbed that copy of Civil War Times Illustrated and read it cover to cover at least twice. Jack's name was listed as the editor, but not in my wildest imagination did I ever think I'd meet him. And I really think your work has always had a great influence on a lot of young people besides myself, so thank you for all that you've done for young people in America and history. In addition to his work with the magazine, he is the author or editor of more than 50 books in the fields of Civil War and Southern history. His book, The Battle of New Market, provided the basis of the motion picture Field of Lost Shoes, which was released in 2014. And I would single out from that incredibly overwhelming list of publications a groundbreaking multi-volume set that he had much to do with, the six-volume Images of War, which was issued before the Internet images became commonplace. Even so, it was so thorough and uses so much material from obscure places that a, they are indispensable even in this internet era. And Jack is perhaps the only really prominent Civil War historian who is equally at ease with other subjects and contributes real scholarship beyond the 1861 to 1865 window. Included in that list is a book on the Alamo, a book on pirates, which will be made into an eight-part miniseries, I might add, a book on the Natchez Trace, and even Civil War cookbooks. Who among the small group of intensive Civil War historians that you know can do stuff like that and be successful at it? 
I don't know anybody but Jack. I would also like to point out that he is the only four-time winner of the Jefferson Davis Award given for book-length works in Confederate history and was a finalist for the 2000 Lincoln Prize and won the, the Baroness Lincoln Award that same year. Do you know anybody else who has won both a Lincoln and a Davis Award? <laughs> I sure don't. Actually, he has been the recipient of more than 30 honors and awards for his historical work and that goes beyond just publishing books. In his past time, he, when he wasn't writing, he somehow found time to serve on the, the on-camera senior consultant for 52 episodes of the Arts and Entertainment Network History Channel series Civil War Journal, as well as a number of other productions on commercial and public television and for the BBC. He has also acted as historical consultant for several tel television and film productions, including The Blue and Gray, George Washington, and The Perfect Tribute. In September 2013, we were all sad when he retired after 13 years as professor of history and executive director of the Virginia Center for Civil War Studies at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. And lastly, I need to mention that his, his most recent publication, Crucible of Command, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, The War They Fought, The Peace They Forge, has just been released. And I think you can find it outside after the, the lecture. So tonight, for all those reasons, we are incredibly fortunate to have with us William Jack Davis for his presentation, Lee's Last War Winter. Jack, thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you, David. You know, it's always so heartwarming to have people tell me what an influence I was on them when they were children. <laughs> uh, some of you probably get that. But <laughs> I think I appreciate it. Thank you, David. Thanks also for the uh, little word of warning about the, um, the cell phones. Uh, I was telling Graham Dozier on the way in tonight, I was speaking down in Miami. Florida back in January, on Lincoln, as it happened, and a cell phone went off. I was five minutes into my talk. It was my phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you do when you've just made a jackass out of yourself and <clears throat> in front of two or 300 people? So I, I answered the call. <laughs> it looked like it was a junk call. It was 877-something. So I tried to turn it around and make the person who made the call the one who was the fool and say, what on earth are you doing calling me? Can't you see I'm in front of an audience here in Miami talking to all these people? I don't want to buy your damn magazine subscriptions or a burial plot. I don't want investments here, and I don't care if I want a cruise to t Timbuktu. And hung up. A big laugh out of the crowd. It actually was the publicist at my publisher for my new book. <laughs> who has, has shown exponentially less interest in marketing my book than she had, <laughs> than she had theretofore. <clears throat> I almost was going to take a big risk tonight. Uh, last night I was in Washington uh, visiting my daughter and her boyfriend, who is a banjo player. Everybody needs a son-in-law who's a banjo player. <laughs> it's okay, I was a banjo player in college. And we went to uh, the National Theater last night and some of you people will know who I'm talking about. We saw a fellow whose name is Barry Humphreys, 
but his stage presence is Dame Edna Everidge. Anybody ever come across Dame Edna? The British think, have always thought it was hilarious for a man to dress up in a woman's gown. Well, Dame Edna has been appearing in that fashion for 60 years and really is hilarious. She got a standing ovation several times, which gave me the idea that perhaps if I dressed in a woman's gown, I might get an equal reception here uh, tonight. Um, but I decided, I decided not to try it. I'm going to talk with you about Lee's last four winter, as, as Dave said. It's kind of the culmination of those four desperate years that were extremely hard on Lee, uh, not just physically, but emotionally, psychically, personally, hard on his family, hard on the Virginia that he had loved, hard on the nation that, that he came to adopt as his own. And there are winter months that reveal a lot, I think, that's not generally known about Lee's view toward the war, toward the Confederacy, toward what kind of peace might come afterward. You all know there were long months of siege in Petersburg. In that latter half of 1864, Lee found very little opportunity for relaxation. He could occasionally go to church, but most of the time when he wasn't at headquarters, he was out attending to business, riding along his lines, making corrections in position, giving instructions for enhancing the earthworks or else in, here in Richmond, lobbying President Jefferson Davis, the War Department, and even congressmen for more men and supplies. By that fall, <clears throat> he already felt stiff and uncomfortable on horseback. Some days those rides took him more than 30 miles, but it had to be done. He could feel, and he spoke of feeling, his failing strength. He knew he could have gotten a room, he could even have gotten a house someplace if he chose as a headquarters, but that would separate him from his staff and it would delay business. He tried to shield himself from what he called exciting causes, that is things that might upset him or distract his attention. But he asked his wife, Mary, what care can a man give to himself in a time of war? At least he did get a new tent. His old one was three years old. The war had ravaged its roof and walls and now it scarcely afforded dry shelter. Rain came in everywhere, soaking Lee, anyone with him, and everything he had. I doubt whether it will hold together any longer, he testified. He was hoping that a new one might be made for him that would at least close up in the front to keep the wind out and perhaps be sufficiently capacious for himself and others to have a meeting inside out of the elements. Less than a week after he submitted his request, the quartermaster sent him a new one, but Lee complained the new one was too big. The old one's too small, the new one's too big. He didn't like the luxury of a roomy tent after he had confined all of his own staff officers to much smaller ones. He was always conscious of example. There were a few pleasant moments even in the old tent. He had a split bottom cane chair. It was clean and cozy. Sometimes he took the chair outside, put on his spectacles, and he could pore over the newspapers from the south and from the north looking for hints. On quiet days, he could hear the small flock of chickens that he kept around his headquarters, not for the meat, but for the eggs. Occasionally, he could get iced buttermilk. Yum. <laughs> How many have ever drunk buttermilk? God, it's just vile stuff. <laughs> I, I, had an uncle, I had an uncle in Missouri who would drink it, and he was always in a foul mood. 
I connect the two. He put salt on it, and so then he was in a foul mood with high blood pressure. <laughs> he, Lee's troubled about Mary's health, though when she left Richmond for a safer residence, it's the country home of a friend, he, he felt some relief, though it made their visits infrequent. Christmas of 1864 found him alone at his headquarters, but that hardly mattered. I am unable to have any enjoyment of that kind now, he wrote to her. He was happy just to be able to attend church that day. It was a chance to acknowledge what Lee referred to as him, who alone controls the destiny of nations. These respites, however, are few. Grant seems so pleased with his present position that I fear he will never move again, Lee had written Mary. But of course he knew that Grant would move. Where are we to get sufficient troops to oppose Grant, he asked his son Custis Lee. Now, mind you, Lee would offhandedly dismiss Grant's generalship by saying, I'm quoting, his talent and strategy consists in accumulating overwhelming numbers, which neatly ignored the fact that on one or two occasions, Grant had outthought him. Yet that might not matter if only Lee could achieve parity, equality, and strength of arms. Unless some measures can be devised to replace our losses, the consequences may be disastrous, he warned the Secretary of War, James Seddon. No man should be excused from service. The Confederacy must conscript more men, draft more men, put arms in the hands of non-combatant soldiers. With only a few thousand new men, he felt he could hold his defenses and then use his veterans to deliver a telling blow. Without some increase in our strength, I cannot see how we are to escape the natural military consequences of the enemy's numerical superiority. He was receptive to any expedient, an open mind is a hallmark of Lee's character. Barely a week after he stopped Grant's assaults in Petersburg, Lee conceived the novel idea of sending the Maryland troops from his army north to the Potomac where they would be ferried across the river to make an amphibious landing at Point Lookout, Maryland to attack the Union prisoner of war camp maintained there and free more than 12,000 Confederate soldiers to return to his ranks. He believed that the prison garrison was almost all Negro soldiers and assumed that the officers of such troops would be poor and feeble and therefore they would all offer little resistance. Once free and armed with their captors' weapons, the prisoners and their liberators would then march around Washington and cross the Potomac somewhere upstream. Lee is hardly given to impractical schemes, yet this was easily the most fanciful one he would conceive during the war. It revealed in some degree his desperation, but also his willingness to disenthrall himself of the conventional if it would solve his problem. He proposed to Jefferson Davis that all men serving in rear echelon positions should be sent to the front, their places to be filled with hired slaves and free blacks. I think measures should be taken immediately to substitute Negroes for whites in every place in the army, he said, meaning use as teamsters, cooks, hospital orderlies, that sort of thing, but not as soldiers, though that might be the logical extension of his argument. As further evidence of desperation and improvisation, he asked the president to call out the old overage reserves and the county home guard, you know, the old, the lame, and the halt, you know, the antiquated people whose publishing of certain magazines influenced young high school students. Again, to man defenses and garrisons so that the veterans would be available to strike 
when the opportunity presented itself. Throughout that winter, Lee made trip after trip into Richmond trying to motivate the War Department. When he returned to his headquarters after these visits, he would groan that no one listened and that congressmen interrupted his conferences with the president to ask for furloughs for their constituents when Lee felt those congressmen should be sending men to the army rather than trying to get them away. On the rare occasions when he could dine with Mary and his daughters in the house they soon rented uh, on Franklin Street, he would pace, all the while ranting that as his men were starving, Congress had nothing better to do than to chew peanuts and tobacco. You all know, by the way, that we're usually safer when Congress is chewing peanuts and tobacco <laughs> than enacting legislation. When a senator from Texas petitioned him to send one of his best brigades in the Army home to the Lone Star State, just as operations were on the eve of commencing, Lee responded that such is our great want of men that the absence of even 400 would be severely felt, especially 400 of our best troops. What he needed, what he wanted, was for Jefferson Davis somehow to bring east of the Mississippi the thousands of soldiers largely lying idle west of the river, just as Grant had done when he came east to Washington. If our people will sustain the soldiers, as they have hitherto done, and face loss of property and deprivation of comfort with the unflinching fortitude that distinguishes their sons and brothers in the field, our success is neither doubtful nor remote. So he declared in January 1865, and under the blessing of God, he said, all will be well. So long as those sentiments animated his soldiers, our overthrow, he said, is beyond the power of the enemy. Though he might dismiss the fighting capability of black soldiers in his Point Lookout plan, Lee slowly came to endorse the ultimate expedient of enlisting Negroes. We must choose, he said, between employing Negroes ourselves or having them employed against us. He was not speaking yet of using them as combatants, but by that winter, the situation was so desperate that the issue of enlisting blacks emerged in legislation in Congress, as I'm sure you all know, and Lee was asked for his views. Little had changed in his pre-war feelings towards slavery or Negroes. If, he said, controlled by humane laws and influenced by Christianity and an enlightened public sentiment, he believed slavery was the best relationship that could exist between white and black in the same country. I would deprecate any sudden disturbance of that relation, he said. Ideally, he preferred to depend on his white soldiers to fight the Federals, but he now believed that that population simply was no longer great enough. He'd seen slaves freed by enemy advances, swelling Yankee numbers as those men enlisted to destroy slavery in what Lee feared was a manner most pernicious to the welfare of our people. Their own slaves would be used against them by the Yankees to hold their army in place while the enemy completed his conquest. Whatever may be the effect of our employing Negro troops, it cannot be as mischievous as this, he said to Davis. If it ends in subverting slavery, it will be accomplished by ourselves and we can devise the means of alleviating the evil consequences to both races. Whites would still be in full control. If they lost, then Northern abolitionists would be in charge, slavery abolished, and society overturned, threatening white supremacy. 
it came down to a simple question. We must decide whether slavery shall be extinguished by our enemies and the slaves used against us, or use them ourselves at the risk of the effects which must be produced upon our social institutions. They had the physical strength and the endurance. They had long habits, he said, of obedience and subordination, coupled with the moral influence which in our country the white man possesses over the black. These furnish an excellent foundation for that discipline which is the best guarantee of military efficiency. They just needed a reason to fight. Lee favored as a reason the immediate freedom for those who became soldiers and freedom for their families at war's end, and with it, the privilege, he said, of residing in the South. The Confederacy, he said, ought to implement a well-digested plan of gradual and general emancipation. The end of slavery was inevitable if the war lasted much longer, and certainly if the Yankees won, so he argued that they should adopt their own emancipation immediately, thus denying to the enemy one of its most powerful weapons in world opinion, making it incontestable that the Confederate struggle was one for independence and not one for the perpetuation of slavery. They might not raise a large force immediately, he said, but he, if he could forestall Grant for just a few months in the coming campaign in the spring, black regiments under white officers might become numerous given time. Time, of course, is what Lee did not have. His growing anger toward the foe hardened that winter. You've all heard the myth that Lee never referred to the enemy as the enemy. It is just that, a myth. He referred to them as the enemy frequently and more and more. And by 1863, I think he had genuinely developed what for Lee would amount to hatred of Northerners. How many happy homes have they destroyed, he said, and turned the occupants drift adrift in the world? From how many hearts have they expelled all hopes of happiness forever? The Yankees, he said, have planted darkness and despair where once flourished love and happiness. The Yankees were nothing more than cowardly persecutors. He would readily believe rumors now, rumors such as the one that Federals tore down all the churches in Culpeper Courthouse and reused the materials in Lee's words for the vilest purposes, meaning, I think, to build tenements and essentially bordellos for camp followers. He felt outrage that the pews from one church were hauled away to use as seating in a theater. When he heard a sermon on the forgiveness of enemies that winter, he granted that he ought to make an effort to do so, but he told Mary, it is a hard lesson to learn now. That anger, the frustration of his inability to awaken Richmond to urgency, his bone weariness, and the sense of his own time running out all fed his bent toward fatalism. Daily, he could feel his physical strength flagging, his energy sapped. <clears throat> he might not admit that Grant had outguessed him more than once, but still he was very conscious that his mental acuity was getting duller. Several times in the past campaign, he'd almost courted death when he tried to personally lead men into battle. You're all familiar with the famous Lee to the rear episodes. Meanwhile, the reaper's scythe had taken his daughter, his daughter-in-law, his grandchildren. Then in August of 64, he learned of the death of his beloved old uncle, Williams Carter. Nostalgically, Lee spoke of him as, quote, the last connecting link 
to the persons whom I enjoyed in my boyhood and who made my days so happy. All of his bonds to happiness were being severed by the war. I think it's too much <coughs> excuse me, to say that Lee had a death wish now, but death might not have been unwelcome. His providentialism, his view of man and the universe was so advanced that for years now he spoke of the loss of relatives or friends as a release from a burdensome life. Sometimes when a child died, he would express pleasure because now the child would be spared the torments and the trials of living a full, long life. My favorite instance is, is that it's before the war, a couple of newlyweds, the husband died very shortly after the honeymoon. It must have been some honeymoon. <laughs> <coughs> and Lee wrote to his wife saying they should be joyous because now he will be spared the disillusionment and the dismay and the heartache that comes with marriage. <laughs> On your next anniversary, <clears throat> write that to each other. <laughs> Convinced that he would be in paradise one day with his loved ones, past and present, he sometimes turned his thoughts from the inevitability of his passing to its manner. A soldier all his adult life. He considered how a warrior ought to die. And one day, we don't know what day it was, but it's around this time, he mused about it on paper, remembering fragments from his boyhood classics. The warmest instincts of man's, every man's soul declare the glory of the soldier's death. It's more appropriate to the Christian than to the Greek to sing glorious his fate and envied his lot who for his country fights and for it dies. There is a true glory and a true honor, the glory of duty done, the honor of the integrity of principle. Dying as a soldier would be a good death. He might not seek it, but he would accept it should it come. But until then, there was for him only the glory of duty. By the early weeks of 1865, Lee's patience is about exhausted. <clears throat> One day entering the executive mansion, he met Senator Benjamin Hill of Georgia coming out. Mindful of the danger to Richmond, Hill asked Lee what he thought of moving the capital somewhere easier to defend, probably to Atlanta. The Georgians spent the whole war lobbying to get the capital moved to Atlanta. Well, they have a varsity drive down there which does a great chili dog. If you haven't been there, go. <laughs> <clears throat> Lee politely declined to comment on the matter, saying it was outside his field of responsibility. Lee is always rigidly aware of the clear line of demarcation between the civil and the military in a constitutional democracy, and he, like his counterpart Grant, will always honor that line. But Hill pressed him that it was his business, since if the Confederacy should last long enough for Jefferson Davis's six-year term as president to expire in 1868, Shirley Lee would be chosen as his successor. Lee recoiled, never. And as Hill later remembered his words, Lee added, I think the military and civil talents are distinct, if not different. And full duty in either sphere is about as much as any one man can qualify himself to perform. He said he would never do the people the injustice to accept high office. He privately uh, said around this time as well, 
that being a politician is one of the most incurable forms of insanity. There is. <laughs> now, there would be no groundswell to make Lee president emerging in the Confederacy, as it did for Grant in the North after Vicksburg. But with any election still over three years distant, the Confederates didn't project Lee beyond his current role. That suited him, for if anything, by this time, he is sick of presidents. On February 25th, Jefferson Davis wanted to consult with Lee about a rumor he had heard and suggested, I'm quoting, if you can spare the time, I wish you to come here, meaning Richmond. Lee usually returned in an irritable mood after meeting Davis. After one such fruitless visit, he complained loudly of the difficulty of maintaining his defenses with an army that Richmond would not increase. When an aide asked why he didn't just abandon the capital, Lee turned on that aide what his staff referred to as his two-inch plank glare. I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but I presume it's something to do with hitting somebody over the head with a two-inch plank. And he shot back that if he did that, he would be a traitor to his government. In such a mood now, he got the president's note <coughs> to come talk of rumors, and he replied in writing that it would be difficult to get away and suggested that the president send him written details about the rumor, and he would respond. That sent Davis into orbit. <laughs> Angrily, he replied, rest assured I will never ask your views in answer to rumors. Your counsels are no longer wanted in this matter. It's that's the response of a hurt child. Lee was the man Davis turned to more than any other. Lee was his friend. Lee, Davis could somehow find some comfort, some succor in the company and the counsel of this man whom he so admired, and he simply couldn't handle being told no by his friend. Feeling the president's anger, Lee resignedly returned to Richmond as the good soldier to try to mollify Davis. He told no one what transpired at the meeting, but when he returned a few days later, he was visibly depressed. The president calmed down in time, but for a little while, the tone of his letters was just a bit arctic. At some indefinite moment, I'm convinced that Lee concluded that the war was lost. Of course, from the outset, he acknowledged the possibility of defeat. Every recommendation he made for strengthening Confederate arms carried with it an implicit suggestion of the unhappy alternative. Over time, that evolved in Lee's mind from possibility to probability, an evolution that may have begun as early as June 1864 when Grant began to lay siege and Lee found himself all but trapped in his defenses. Yet even after Atlanta's fall in September, Lee did not see the cause as irretrievable. The fall of Atlanta is a blow to us, he told his wife at the time, but not very grievous, and one which I hope we will soon recover from. But then in November 1864, Lincoln's re-election dashed the Confederacy's last hopes of the North's peace faction taking over and somehow or other letting the Confederacy go. If what he saw by that time didn't convince Lee that the cause was lost, the rumblings reaching him from the political backrooms in Richmond should have. By January 1865, Davis's opposition were calling for his impeachment. You all know there were no political parties in the Confederacy. That was the goal, was to have a, a, you know, a, a democracy 
with no political parties when the Confederacy was formed. It was a wonderful idealistic idea that lasted about 38 seconds. <laughs> the Confederacy is formed by politicians and lawyers. Very quickly, you don't, you don't have Republicans or Democrats or Democrats and the Whigs. What you had was the administration party and the anti-Jefferson Davis party <laughs> who couldn't even agree amongst themselves about much of anything except they all agreed on one plank, well, two really, one, that Jefferson Davis was a terrible president, and two, that each of them would have been a better president. <coughs> the Speaker of the State House in South Carolina in January proposed that Congress should leave Davis in office but enact legislation to remove his commander-in-chief power and install Lee as the military head of the government. Rumors about making Lee a full dictator had surfaced at least as early as January 1864, and sporadically they would reappear thereafter. Later that year, another South Carolinian, it's always South Carolinians who are starting <laughs> trouble. Just take it, it, take it as revealed word. Robert Barnwell Rett proposed to Vice President Alexander H. Stevens that Congress bypass the impeachment process that's in their constitution and remove Davis from office immediately by force if necessary. Then Stevens should step aside from his constitutional obligation to succeed Davis, allowing Congress to install Lee as military dictator. By November 1864, here in Richmond, Davis and Lee's pastor, the Reverend Charles Minigarod, heard whispers here loud enough that he feared that, quote, the idea of a military dictator in the person of General Lee seems to be predominating here. Rhett hammered on into 1865 for Davis's replacement by what he called a high-toned gentleman in the land like Lee. Now, Stevens ignored Rhett, and Lee would never have countenanced such a plot. Still, though he avoided corresponding with dissident politicians like this, their scheming was surely known to him, especially since by the end of 1864, two Richmond newspapers were openly calling for Lee's insta uh, installation as supreme leader. Lee said nothing in the matter, then or later. He never gave any evidence that he was ever aware of it. But it all spoke eloquently of the spreading rot within the Confederacy's civil authority. In a half step toward crippling the president's power, the Senate on January 16th created the office of General-in-Chief of the Armies, there being no question who they expected the president to appoint. On the last day of the month, Davis submitted Lee's nomination, which the Senate confirmed the next day. Now, in fact, I'm sure many of you are aware of this, Lee had in effect been General-in-Chief since 1862, though in that regard he acted only in an advisory capacity. But now Congress was putting him and Davis on notice that it expected Lee to manage all of the Confederacy's military operations actively, something that Lee himself protested was impractical. He assumed the post on February 9th, complaining that he had no instructions and no idea of what Davis wanted him to do. I suppose Davis could have said, when, but he didn't. <laughs> Henceforth, orders to other army commanders did come from Lee for the most part, but the working relationship between the two men didn't change, Lee remaining as deferential as ever. He continued watching events elsewhere, but other than putting Joseph E. Johnston again in command of the Army of Tennessee in February, or advising PGT Beauregard on the defense of Mobile in March, he made little effort to exert influence beyond Virginia, which had always been Lee's Confederacy. Though he might not be a dictator, 
he now had the power to act unilaterally for all Confederate land forces, which made him the only warrior in the land with the power to make peace, something worth remembering. Lincoln had been under pressure repeatedly to make overtures to Davis to end the war, and several inconclusive feelers had followed. You're all familiar with the Hampton Roads Peace Conference and things of that sort. But Lincoln's insistence on reunion and Davis's insistence on independence were mutually exclusive. Then a man named James W. Singleton, a Virginia native, now a prominent Democrat from Illinois, but also a friend of Abraham Lincoln's, arrived in Richmond. He had been active in the Northern Peace Movement, despite which, in January, Lincoln allowed him to go to Richmond, ostensibly to purchase Southern produce, but unofficially to approach Confederates about reunion. Singleton later claimed <clears throat> to have met with Stevens, Virginia Senator R.M.T. Hunter, you know, it's Robert Mercer, Tolliver Hunter, but most people say that initials really stood for Run Mad Tom, <laughs> Assistant Secretary of War John A. Campbell, Robert Old, Chief of the Bureau of Prisoner Exchange, and others, all of whom said to him that they believed the war was lost. They also told him that Generals James Longstreet and Richard Ewell, and even Lee, agreed. The Senate's resolution making Lee general-in-chief suggested to Singleton that Lee now had the power to order all Confederate land forces to lay down their arms. Coincidentally, General John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky arrived in Richmond at that very moment to assume his new position as Secretary of War. Singleton knew Breckinridge. He revealed his secret agendum to him, and Breckinridge arranged for him to have a meeting with Lee. They met on January 19th, which was Lee's birthday. They met at Army headquarters. Singleton declared that further fighting only postponed the inevitable, and he would later say that Lee responded that, Lee, that he was, quote, in the hands of providence. Lee is a providentialist. He's always in the hands of providence. But that though he was a soldier, he was a man of peace who wanted to stop the bloodletting and, I'm quoting, would go as far as any man in the Confederacy in his efforts to do so. This is what Singleton says Lee has said. The last thing he wanted was to leave an unfinished war as his legacy to his children. It was his duty to fight on if he must, his only hint that now perhaps he was fighting out of duty, not expectation of success but he would be glad to be spared that by a permanent peace. Lee left Singleton believing that a 60-day armistice could produce a negotiated reconstruction on liberal terms and that the South would give up slavery immediately in return for what Lee called fair compensation and constitutional protection of other rights of person and property. To that end, Lee said he would be willing to meet with Grant to discuss a platform for peace. Singleton wrote back to Lincoln telling him, Lee is the man with whom to treat. And others realized that as well. Breckinridge assumed his portfolio as Secretary of War on February 7th and soon was meeting with Lee almost every day, at first on matters relating to supplies and defense. Then late in February, Longstreet came to Lee with a surprising proposal, according to Longstreet years later. Meeting under a flag of truce to discuss prisoner issues with General E.O.C. Ord, 
One of them changed the subject to how the commanding generals might end the war. Ord suggested that if Lee wanted to discuss the matter with Grant, he was sure Grant would agree to meet. It was this, as well as making his peace with an offended president, that brought Lee to Richmond on February 26th to see Davis as well as Breckinridge. Three weeks late earlier, Lee had stated for public consumption that he did not see how the Confederacy could, by any compromise or negotiation with the enemy, abate any of the rights they claimed without a surrender of the liberty we derived from our ancestors. But now privately, he's endorsing such a meeting, hoping there might be a possibility of peace short of defeat. If he and Grant could negotiate the points at issue and submit their recommendations, to a military convention. <coughs> uh, Breckinridge had long believed that the war was lost and that reunion was inevitable. Lee seems to have felt the same now. Davis was not nearly ready to yield and never would be. And he would seize on any hope for negotiations as a means of buying time. Lee would write to Grant on March 2nd, suggesting a meeting. He admitted that he expected Grant to refuse any discussion not predicated on reunion as indeed Grant did. But as Lee told Davis, he doubted that the Confederate people would accept reunion yet a while. They weren't ready for it yet, which rather implies that he thinks they might soon be. The day that Lee received Grant's refusal to meet, he met with Breckinridge and other War Department officials to discuss the prospects for his army that spring, and they were gloomy. Then the conversation turned to peace. Jefferson Davis was the obstacle but Breckinridge thought a determined push from the Senate might force the president to address the issue. Lee knew Senator Run Mad Tom Hunter well enough to approach him and suggested to Hunter that he introduce a resolution in the Senate calling on Davis to open negotiations looking toward an honorable surrender. Lee further told Hunter that his own role, Lee's, would be publicly to recommend opening negotiations, which he believed that the Army and the people would regard as almost equivalent to surrender. This was no palace coup, but a plan by constitutional means to nudge President Davis to action. Unfortunately, Hunter refused to go along with it. Set back but not beaten, the Secretary of War and the General took a suggestion from Campbell, who agreed with them that any peace would inevitably come on terms of reunion and emancipation. On March 6th or 7th, we don't know which, Lee and Breckinridge discussed it, and then on March 8th, in his official capacity as War Secretary, Breckinridge asked Lee for a candid, written statement of the military situation to show to Davis and to show to Congress. If Lee went on record publicly declaring that they were beaten, then surely the President would have to yield. The next day, Lee delivered a report saying that their cause was indeed full of peril. They were ill-equipped, ill-fed, outnumbered everywhere, and he felt little hope of standing up to the foe in the spring. It is not worse than the superior numbers and resources of the enemy justified us in expecting from the beginning, he added. The Confederacy had simply held out longer than we had reason to anticipate. But then, for some reason, he temporized. The fall of Richmond and Petersburg would not be necessarily fatal if the army could be sustained, he said. Now, he did not say that their case was hopeless, and he didn't mention opening negotiations. Instead, he said everything depended on how much more sacrifice Congress believed the people could sustain. 
In so doing, Lee essentially compromised the purpose of his report. We don't know why. He said nothing about it afterwards. Either he recoiled from working with politicians, which is always good advice, or his loyalty to Davis and his sense of his duty trumped his unchanged conviction of inevitable defeat. Observers in the War Department and close to Davis detected now an uncharacteristic caution in the report, and Assistant Secretary Campbell concluded that Lee declined to do more than perform his military duty and would not assume to counsel, much less act, upon the question of peace. Even that report, Davis sequestered and only released a very carefully edited precis to the public that even further weakened the document. Congress adjourned on March 18th, taking itself out of the equation. That same day, Lee began several days of private discussions with Breckinridge, their greatest bargaining ship now at hand with the Army of Northern Virginia. Breckinridge had been preparing in advance for the evacuation of the capital for weeks now, and that exigency had been on Lee's mind for some time as well. When General John B. Hood suggested that he concentrate the armies east of the Mississippi and Tennessee, Lee replied that by energy and boldness, the army might force its way to the borders of Tennessee, but they would still be too weak to occupy the country effectively, and our continuance would depend upon victory. Lee favored instead a joining of the forces somewhere in southern Virginia, close to Grant, where they could turn first perhaps on Sherman, who's pursuing Joseph E. Johnston, and then, if victorious, turn on Grant. There would be fewer complications in such a movement. Even coming from Lee, it was a plan that would have been delusional coming from anyone else. But coming from Lee, it looked like there might be some at least temporary advantage before the relentless Grant caught up to him. The idea of Lee operating again in the open field posed a much more powerful argument in any surrender negotiations than he did bottled up in earthworks around Richmond. That's very likely why he compromised that report, understanding that his army out in the open spoke much more loudly than it did in the trenches at Petersburg. On March 25th, as you know, at Fort Stebbin, he launched a surprisingly powerful strike against the northern end of the Yankee siege lines, reasoning that a breakthrough there would force Grant to contract elsewhere, which would open the way for Lee and much of his army to rush south to Johnston. Though the attack initially broke through, it soon lost momentum and the Confederates were forced back to their earthworks. That left Lee with nothing to do but hope to get his army out in the field before the Yankees severed the last link out of Petersburg. On April 1st, Federal cavalry collapsed his right flank at Five Forks. All the next day, they pressed the whole Confederate line. Lee knew he could stay in place no longer. He sent a telegram to Richmond advising the president to prepare to abandon the capital. Soon a telegram came back from the president with news that the government was not ready to move. <laughs> its archives had yet to be packed and no one had arranged transportation. In fact, the, only the War Department was ready to go and that's thanks to Breckinridge. When Lee read the president's message, he tore it to pieces and threw it on the ground, muttering absentmindedly, I think to himself, I am sure I gave him sufficient notice. From the time his defensive lines first enveloped Petersburg, Lee felt painfully aware of the hardships of its good people. And now looking back on the city as he rode out in the evacuation, he felt sorrowful for the lot to which he'd abandoned them. His hope was to outrun the Federals, reach the supply depots at Lynchburg, and then turn south into North Carolina. 
more distant still now was any likelihood that he could really make that happen. As his depleted lesions made their way west, his temper grew short in frustration and anguish. Lee had a real temper, and he often had trouble controlling it. Riding past a battery on the road, he saw a soldier exhibiting what he called poor march discipline. I don't know what that means. And he ordered the soldier to be arrested. Perhaps the only time in the war that I know of in which Lee ordered an arrest face to face. On April 5th, he reached Amelia Courthouse expecting to find supplies only to discover that Grant's spies had diverted. Forced to keep moving hungry, Lee pressed on the next day and in the morning, Breckenridge caught up to him and they conferred briefly. That night they met again in Farmville, but after a third of the army had been lost at Sailor's Creek when it became isolated from the rest. Lee had not much more than 25,000 soldiers remaining. He and the Secretary of War met again on the morning of April 7th. Neither later divulged what they discussed. Surely much would have centered on avoiding battle, if at all possible, and getting the remnant of the army away to link with Johnston. But inevitably, they had to have spoken as well of possible terms if Lee could not escape. Assistant Secretary Campbell had remained in Richmond, hoping to meet with Lincoln to make their arguments for restoration. If brought to bay by Grant, Lee could try to make that same case to him if the reward were not just the Army of Northern Virginia, but all remaining Confederate forces. Coincidentally, just hours later, Grant sent a note through the lines suggesting that further resistance meant only more useless bloodletting and asking Lee to surrender. Lee's reply reached him the next day, denying that the situation was yet that critical, but sort of just for the fun of it, asking what terms Grant might propose <laughs> before he considered the call for capitulation. Peace being my great desire, responded Grant, he had but one condition, that on surrendering, the Confederates go home and not take arms again until properly exchanged, which of course he knew would never happen. Lee still kept up a bold front. He wrote back asserting, I did not intend to propose the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia, but then he went on to add that since the restoration of peace should be the sole object of all, he would like to meet with Grant to discuss how his proposed terms <coughs> may affect the Confederate States forces under my command and tend to the restoration of peace. Lee's meaning depends on how you read this note. Did he mean he wouldn't discuss surrendering the Army of Northern Virginia or he had not meant to limit his inquiry to just that army? He was willing to talk about something affecting, quote, the Confederate States forces under my command. Who is that now? all Confederate soldiers everywhere, as he is general-in-chief. Lee, I think, was attempting to do now what Breckinridge and Campbell had hoped he would do weeks before. He still had something to bargain with. He said nothing about restoration of the Union or the end of slavery. Both are foregone conclusions now. But there were other considerations of importance to Southerners in any peace to come. Would Confederate officers and men be proscribed in any fashion? Or would they have their full rights in a restored union? Would their leaders like Davis face indictment and trial for treason or be left unmolested? Would they be secure in their real property or face further confiscation as punitive retaliation or to recompense the North for its war debt? Would their own war debts abroad be assumed by Washington? 
Most of all, could their sitting governors and legislatures be allowed to continue in office and would they be allowed to send representatives to Congress once again with full and equal rights? Would the relation of the states to the federal government be the same as before or were they to be thereafter entirely subordinate to the central authority? In short, were they to have the union of 1860 or something newer and less palatable? By speaking of the Confederate forces under my command, Lee hinted that in return for something approaching the former, he would consider a universal surrender or ceasefire preferably, though he probably hoped that talks with Grant would lead, as I said, to an armistice followed by a voluntary dissolution of Confederate forces, which would mean not a defeat, but a withdrawal from honor. <laughs> a withdrawal with honor, I'm sorry. I'll never forget, years ago, I spoke at a, a group down in, in uh, Georgia, and I referred to the uh, end of the war in some fashion as a defeat, and a gentleman in the audience pointed out to me afterward that uh, 1865 was not when the Confederacy was defeated. It was when they withdrew from the war. <laughs> you know, as if to say, well, we had a great time kicking hell out of it for four years. Now we're going to go home, put in a crop, refresh the missus, and we'll come back and see you again next spring. <laughs> Further resistance in the interest of Confederate independence might be a fantasy now, but with perhaps up to 100,000 men or more still under arms between Virginia and Texas, the Confederates still had the power to make the Yankees pay dearly in blood and treasure. Like Breckinridge and Campbell, Lee regarded that as something to trade in return for some political and social concessions and an end to conflict short of the humiliation of surrender. Most significantly, Lee hinted at all of this with no consultation with President Davis. Grant quashed that immediately by responding on the morning of April 9th that I have no authority to treat on the subject of peace. He was only authorized to accept the surrender of Lee's army. If there had ever been a time when the Campbell, Breckinridge, Lee plan for peace had a hope, that moment was past. Lee realized that when he received Grant's reply. His army was almost surrounded, starving, with his only route of escape to the west cut off. His options were gone. As soon as he received Grant's refusal at about 8.30 that morning, he accepted the inevitable. A few years later, he began to dress in his finest uniform for his meeting with General Grant. Thank you all. Uh, that went a little long, but I'll be happy to take questions if we have time for questions. It's all right. Uh, uh, Lee was under a huge burden. <coughs> when the um, uh, political uh, aspects of the uh, uh, surrender uh, were blown off by Grant, why did Lee then choose not to surrender all of the armies? Well, uh, everybody heard the question. Interestingly enough, Grant will ask Lee for a meeting the next day, April 10th. They'll meet sitting on horseback between lines. They meet for about a half an hour, a little more. Uh, Grant left sort of an account of the meeting. Lee left none, but an officer with him did. And apparently this is what Grant then tried to bring up next. Okay, the Army of Northern Virginia has been dealt with, but now we have an opportunity to do more. And Lee himself apparently tried to remind Grant of 
how much a confederacy there still was that Grant was going to have to run down and defeat. It's a hint, I think, that he still realizes that there's something to bargain with. We just don't know enough about this meeting to know how it went. Uh, Grant seems to have been inclined to run any terms, that, that any other surrenders would be on the same terms. Lee, I think, was still hoping, this is just my interpretation, was probably still hoping for something more than just a surrender, but for some beginnings of uh, a post-war settlement for uh, reconstruction. In fact, according to, I think it's Charles Marshall, who was with Lee, Grant supposedly said he would be willing to escort Lee back to Washington or to Richmond to meet with President Lincoln to discuss uh, peace. This, that's a recollection years after the fact, so I don't know if it's, if it's genuine or not. Uh, but clearly, even after Appomattox, the issue of the rest of the Confederate soldiers was still on Lee's mind. According to Grant, Lee said he could not deal with that without, Jeff without consulting President Davis, who of course couldn't be found because the, the Confederate government's on the run at that point. <clears throat> yes. Uh, in January, when uh, Lee was made the, uh, I guess, the official military commander. General uh, in chief, yeah. Okay. Uh, he now had the power to uh, draw upon um, <coughs> the resources that you spoke earlier of that might have been in the West. Uh, why didn't he follow through on that? And the uh, other question I have is uh, whatever became of that. Uh, fanciful plan to uh, uh, free the prisoners up north? Well, I'll take the latter first. Um, nothing. It, it, was, it was an idea that Lee sort of proposed, but I, I forget if he dropped it or if someone else did. It was, it, I think, it was pretty much determined to be rather impractical. As to why Lee didn't order those forces from the west to come east, even though he's general-in-chief at that point, Lee is still essentially deferential to Jefferson Davis. I think he's, that's why he could never have been dictator. He really had a difficult time separating himself from his notion of the military subordination to the civil authority. And Jefferson Davis would never have gone for it. I mean, even, even when the Confederate government is in flight, Davis is still talking about all the territory they're going to hold on to. And you know, he has this notion that somehow or other phantom legions are going to come out of the mountains and everywhere else, the lame, the halt, the, the draft dodges, everybody else, and he'll form a new army. And, and they're going to need those people out west because the new headquarters of the Confederacy might be in Arkansas or Texas. I don't know how he was going to get across the Mississippi River since they had no boats, but maybe he was going to walk across it. <laughs> and they, you know, if, if they had to retreat to Southern California, fine, they can play golf. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm being flip, and I'm sorry for that. Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> but, um, but Davis is a little detached, I think, from reality and keeps – he cannot – get his head around the, the idea that somehow he can't turn all this around. And uh, Davis, I think, would never have stood for it. Uh, Lee really can only exercise this, this tremendous power he appears to have constitutionally if the president will go along with him. I know Lee discounted this uh, apparently by not even bringing it up and not even discussing it, of uh, 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 counterinsurgents or insurgents or guerrillas operating in the mountains. <coughs> was there anyone of any uh, importance in the Confederacy as in its last days who really considered that? And were there attempts later after Lee's surrender by smaller units uh, to engage in that kind of warfare? 
uh, Lee certainly did dismiss it because he realized that it was pure folly. I can't think of any other real prominent Confederates who were arguing for it. I'm sure there were some, probably from South Carolina. <laughs> um, nor were there efforts. Okay. <clears throat> my, my advice is to watch him. <laughs> uh, uh, and I don't think anybody, it, it was never seriously discussed later. Lee realized, and if you stop and think about it, you'll see how impractical it is. Uh, it, view a topographical map of the Confederacy. As the ground goes up and gets higher, attachment to the Confederacy gets lower and lower. These are the areas where slavery never penetrated. Uh, where I live, southwest Virginia was rife with what the Confederates called Tories, Unionists or at least draft dodgers or people engaged in espionage to help the Yankees. These are the people who are saying this is a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. We're the poor men. But if the Confederate army should disband and take to the hills to carry on a, a, a counterinsurgency, those are precisely the people they've got to depend on to support them. And what is, Lee could see what would happen if they tried that, they will be fighting a two-front war, the Yankees in their front and fellow Southerners behind them. Furthermore, with the loss of all of their ports, with, no, with the loss of all transportation infrastructure, how do they get more weapons or more whatever else they need from abroad? It's very impractical, but B, it would lead to an even worse peace by dragging this resistance out so long it was bound to make Reconstruction even more difficult and painful than it was already. I'm sorry if my answers are going on too long. Here's my back. As the uh, Confederacy evacuated Danville, one of the things they were looking for is the uh, treasury. I know it was on a train, and the, supposedly there's a Befford Gold still in the hills of Befford County, Virginia. Is that, whatever happens to that, has that been disproven, not proven? Uh, it, I think it's been pretty much proven to be nonsense for 150 years, but people are still looking for it. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Confederate uh, you, have, you have a Confederate treasure train, as it was being called, being escorted in part by the cadets of the Confederate Naval Academy. Some of you may have not have known the Confederacy had a Naval Academy. Um, it didn't have much of a Navy, but it had an Academy. <laughs> and um, it consisted of two components. One was the actual uh, specie, that is coin, and some bullion and other things from the Confederate treasury itself. I've forgotten the amount, but it's about 200 and it's 200 and some thousand dollars. But they were also es uh, escorting all the deposits from the Richmond banks to protect the, the, the money of the depositors here in Richmond. So you got two separate treasure trains. Uh, they're together, but there's two separate components. By on May 3rd, outside Washington, Georgia, you have to realize these men composing the escort of the fleeing cabinet and the treasure train, like most other Confederates at this stage, probably have been paid in months. And if they were paid, it was in useless banknotes. Uh, they knew the war was over. They knew they were going to have to go home and start over again. And rumblings <coughs> were being heard of attacking the treasure train and plundering it to get money to take home. Uh, Secretary Ward Breckinridge did not want that to happen. He wanted these men who stayed loyal this long to be able to go home with their heads held high, not go home as thieves and robbers. So he halted the train and ordered the treasury dispersed completely, paid out to each of these. I think there were about 2,000 soldiers or something like that 
still with the treasure tree. And each man got, you hear different stories, but it's about $26, I think, according to the actual uh, accounting of uh, Nakaja Jones, who was the uh, clerk of the treasury then. And that was a lot of money in hard coin then. You'll find stories 50 years later as these aged veterans are getting some memories that are really pretty imaginative, <laughs> talking about they were so proud of that that they still had that same $26 today. They're all lying through their teeth. <laughs> uh, they spent that money desperately needed. The Richmond bank deposits were then sent on, on their own, and that uh, train was, in fact, stopped and robbed. But most of it was recovered, and it was then turned over to the pursuing federals who brought it back to Richmond who turned it back to the depositors. People got about 80 cents on the dollar for their deposit. There's nothing buried anywhere. It's like pirate treasure. It never happened. <laughs>